Good morning. It's great to be back with you. I was uh, thinking about the idea that the church is uh, on its 20th anniversary, and I th think I've probably been here since within the first two or three years that the church was started uh, visiting, um, teaching, establishing friendships. We're uh, very, very grateful for your support over the years for Sunshine and your friendship for uh, Paula and myself. And, and I just want to say really, really excited about Kim's leadership and the transition that's happening at Sunshine. And so hope that uh, you all remain fully engaged. So thankful for, for the recent engagement that the church has, has done. Um, you know, it's my practice if I'm uh, going to preach just to get my workout, sort of my nervous um, little uh, issues to get up real early in the morning and, of the, when I'm going to preach and, and work through things and, and confirm the time the church service starts because, you know, if I was not in the right time zone when I put it in or some other, you know, I don't want to show up an hour late. So I worked all those things out. And then I discovered that there are two services this morning. <laughs> and uh, so my first question for Marshall when I got here is, well, that's great. Who's preaching the second service? <laughs> <laughs> he let me know. <laughs> um, I, uh, I was sitting in a rusty old car with a friend of mine uh, in 1986 in the parking lot of a restaurant called Benjamin's in Minnesota, having a conversation. It's one of those conversations that you just, I'll, I'm never gonna forget it, I'm sure you have some. I don't remember a lot of what else happened in 1986, but I certainly remember this conversation. My friend and I were, uh, we had been spending time studying the scripture, we'd been spending time in a small group, we'd been spending time praying, and we had this conversation that was something like this. You know, if, if, the, if the grace of Jesus Christ, if the, if the, if the the story of the gospel is actually true. If, like, if that's actually true, then, then our lives ought not to be insignificant or filled with triviality or boredom. Like, we, we should set out to do something significant. And uh, I'm sure if I could listen back to that conversation right now, if I actually, you know, got, uh, got a recording of it, I'd probably think it was somewhat naive, you know, I probably... But it was sincere. And uh, my friend and I took it that way. And from there, we both went to study the scripture. Uh, we both entered uh, ministries. Uh, my friend went on to uh, plant a church and, and grow really an amazing ministry. And our lives have kind of been lived in parallel, though we have not lived in the same city since 1988. But we've been good friends. And I got a, I got a text a few weeks ago, and it said, I'm done. I quit my job. Now, that's the first time in 30 years that I can remember him referring to the work that he did as a job. And so I uh, bought a plane ticket, and I flew up to be present for his last sermon. He came down the following week, and we really had some precious time together to kind of unpack what was happening in his life, in the church, in the world around him, uh, shed some tears, and, and just talked through it. I don't know if you know this, but in the last year, almost 40% of the pastors in America have thought seriously about leaving the ministry for good. The, the group that do, does these surveys, the Barna Group, um, describes it as a crisis in the church. That a shocking number of church leaders are at high risk of burnout. And I from my own reflection, uh, from my own struggles at times in ministry, from my conversations with others, from what I've read, I gotta tell you, I don't think it's about Jesus. And I don't think it's about the Bible. And I, 
I don't think it's Black Lives Matter and white supremacy. It doesn't seem to normally be about finances. It doesn't seem to normally be about moral failure. It doesn't even seem to be about the incivility and the culture around us. But it does seem pretty closely aligned with how the incivility and the culture around us has permeated large parts of the church. I listened to an interview with uh, Russell Moore and David Brooks recently. Russell Moore is a man that uh, has been an intellectual leader in the Southern Baptist tradition for many years and recently left. David Brooks is a conservative commentator and author. And in the beginning of the, uh, the uh, interview, Moore asks Brooks, uh, is the world coming apart or does it just seem that way? And Brooks says, you know, the numbers kind of suggest it kind of is. We have a 57% increase in depression in our country. The number of Americans who report having no close friends has quadrupled in one generation. 54% of Americans say, no one knows me well. Suicide is up 30% since 2000. And the rates of unruly passengers on airlines reported by the FAA prior to 2020 never eclipsed 200 in our country, and since then it has not been below 1,100 a year. I was just on an international flight. We had to make uh, an unscheduled landing in Spain to have a young woman who lost her mind taken off the plane in handcuffs, presumably in a country she wasn't, planning, she wasn't from and wasn't going to. Brooks comments about all of this by saying, we, we, could analyzing this, this, we could analyze this idea of things are coming apart sociologically and probably come up with a story. We, we could analyze it economically. And there's probably somewhat of a story there. We could do it politically. But Brooks says, I think the framework that we need to look at is, is the moral lens on what's happening in our country. For really dating back as far as roughly the, the end of World War II, around 50 years, uh, maybe a little longer, there, there's been an excessive trust placed in the self in our culture and a movement away from b believing in the concept of sin. And this has led to arguably sort of a moral anarchy within the culture. But from there, the culture has moved to a political frame to set everything in conversation. And in the political frame, my opponent is now my enemy. And in the midst of these patterns that, that, that are fraying our culture and creating huge amounts of incivility and division and discussion, Brooks makes this observation. He's, he's not a Christian, but he thinks that the role of Christians in our society is exceptionally important. And his observation is this. In the midst of these trends, the candle of Christian formation has burned too dimly to have an effect. People of faith ought to know that asking politics to provide one sense of moral character and life's meaning is simply asking politics to bear more than it's capable of. Politics cannot give us love. So, Brooks concludes, I think we should concentrate on how the faith is lived out. And so that's sort of the question that had been on my mind actually dating back quite a while and the combination of, the, of the, uh, the conversations with my friend and, and with um, 
thinking about this interview have led me to, to really begin thinking about this. What does it mean for us to live as Christians in public? Now, we all, you know, grew up with some kind of worldview, and for those of you who grew up within a, a faith community of some, some type, that, that faith community probably set some basic parameters, some basic boundaries, some sort of basic expectations for how you engage the world. If you drew, grew up in a devout Catholic family, you probably not only went to Mass, but had uh, an understanding of the social component of, of, the, of the Catholic uh, uh, Church's teaching through an, a papal encyclical called Rerum Novarum that, that expressed a concern to be engaged in the society and especially to take care of the poor and the oppressed. If you grew up in a nominal Catholic family, it may, you may have just gone to church, you know, and then there wasn't really anything else to do to connect your faith to the world around you. If you grew up in a conservative evangelical home, you might have grown up in a pretty much a separate society. Separate music, separate books, separate schools maybe, just kind of withdrawn. Uh, depending on the leadership of that church, the, the role that you have in society might have been just trying to get people into that separated society. Or it might have been a little bit more of like a Johnny Appleseed approach with the gospel. Let's just make sure we're just dropping stuff around wherever we go. If you grew up in an immigrant church, there was probably a real emphasis on helping newer immigrants find their place in the church and then in the society around them, employment, housing, et cetera. If, it, if there were a lot of second generation folks in that immigrant church, then there was undoubtedly a regular conversation about how the second generation was or was not adhering to their cultural norms and how they were becoming a part of the society around them. If you grew up in a mostly white church, it's a pretty good chance that you grew up with the message that you know when it comes to politics, be careful, that'll corrupt you, or here's your voting issue card. If you grew up in a black church, it's quite possible you met some local politicians, not only in the church, but occasionally from the pulpit. In any of these settings, it's likely that the tradition, if you grew up in a faith tradition, emphasized being honest, working hard, kind of keeping your nose clean. But whatever that traditional experience with you, what I'd like to think with you about is, is, is what our life is like and how do we understand ourselves, the world around us, and what God has for us in the, in the public or in the public square. Now, each of the traditions that I've just mentioned are belief systems. Now, some of those are overtly taught, some are just kind of inherited, but whether you've articulated them in your own life or not, you're working on one. Now, I, this church, the, tradition, the theological tradition of this church is not really reflected in the comments that I just gave, but will be in what I have to say in a little bit. Now, I, I was educated at a school here in Chicago that was started by a famous evangelist. And one of the things that he was, he was remembered for saying was, I look upon this world as a wrecked vessel. God gave me a lifeboat and said, Moody, save all you can. And that lines up with the first phrase of a really well-known Christian song that starts out, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And that lines up with a phrase that I've heard used in the context of the church many times in reference to the world around us to discount its value. It's just all going to burn. It's been my experience that whether or not your tradition explicitly taught that kind of a notion, that churches in America, and especially evangelical churches, have tended to reflect this view that Moody had of the world around them and what his role was. Sometimes it was articulated, sometimes it was not. But, but while it was often sort of ingrained in the belief, whether it was taught explicitly or not, it, it's not exactly lived out. <laughs> I mean, most Christians I know get jobs and careers that are certainly outside of the Christian community. Most Christians I know buy a nice house or build one. 
maybe drive a nice car, maybe a really fun car. You know, they, they engage. They don't act like the world is uninteresting and completely unworthy of our attention. So while we might not think it's true, we, 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 we rarely live completely uh, sort of attached to that way of thinking that the world, thinking about the world. And then we struggle as we, attach, as we do attach ourselves to things in the world that we love. But sometimes what this, what this does is it sort of creates a psychic problem of having some guilt with the way that we engage the world around us. Like, is it really okay that I love the Rolling Stones? Um, can, we, can we really enjoy a visit to the Museum of Modern Art? Um, can I say The Wire is the best television ever made? Or do these things reflect a brokenness and a, and a corruptness that makes them untouchable? and things that we should completely stay away from. Can I pursue a career as a politician? Or as an academic? Or as a scientist? Or some other vocation that ostensibly gets labeled secular? If we were going to abide by that and really live that out, then we could really say that the, the communities in, in the US that are most consistent that, with that would be the Amish and the Mennonite. For most of us, we don't really live that way. So we live with this tension. Now, we might actually think the, the, the Mennonites and the Amish are more righteous because of the way that they make decisions about withdrawing from the world. I'm not going to judge which tradition in American Christianity has the greatest moral tradition or the highest amount of righteousness, but I am going to argue this morning that I think Moody was basically wrong. At least he didn't allow a, a large part of the scripture that is there to influence followers of Jesus Christ. I think he was failing to come to terms with parts of the scripture that are significant. So if that's true, then what is our role? The order of worship here at Grace says that the final aspect of the liturgy is being sent out into the world for the glory of God and the good of the world. Now, this sending presupposes a calling. And when we think about what our calling as Christians out into the world is, we, we might even think of that as a commission. And if we think about it using the term commission, then in the context of America, we very often think about Matthew 28, one of the passages that we read this morning. It's often called the Great Commission. It's a calling for followers of Jesus Christ to engage the world by sharing their faith, making disciples. And that's true. But it was actually, the, the term Great Commission was actually not found in Christendom until the late 1800s. Now, the words were always there in Scripture. They always have, have had and maintain a great importance. But our cultural context has, has put a weight on that passage of Scripture that has created a shadow for some things that came before it. One author that I have appreciated uh, uh, thinking about this with by the name is a Wheaton professor named Vincent Baycoat. He ends up calling, he ends up saying the, what we know as the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is actually the second Great Commission. The first Great Commission is the passage that we read from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let, make, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And, and this verse and those that immediately follow it that we read imply a potential and a potency loaded into the creation and the future of human society that those who bear God's image will cultivate. 
The direction that's set is for people as being uniquely in all of the creation, reflecting, bearing God's image, to unpack the potential that was below their feet and surrounding them, to build, to cultivate, in a sense, to co-create. Think about what we see in Genesis alone, advancements in agriculture and art and science, in architecture and engineering, in shipping, in fishing, in culture. And that was just getting started. I live there near the University of Chicago and not far from my home uh, in, the, in the midst of the university is a particular 12-foot tall bronze sculpture. When you look at it, it looks a lot like a mushroom. It marks the point where on December 2nd, 1942, a team of scientists led by Italian immigrant Enrico Fermi set the world's first man-made, self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction in motion. It was the world's first artificial nuclear reactor built under the original site of the university's stag field. The event was a decisive step forward in the creation of the age of atomic energy and critically at the time, the atomic bomb. It's fascinating to think about the, what are the implications that God had packed into, the potential that had been put into the creation that, that his people, people creating his image, would, would unpack from the creation. And, and while atomic energy is fascinating, it's literally one of millions and millions and millions of other things that people have unearthed from the creation. God sovereignly placed potential in the creation and the development of people and human culture and he charged his people with cultivating, with creating, with growing, with building. So if you, like I, have at times longed for a freedom to embrace the world around us, not solely as a project of conversion, but also of beauty and opportunity and of fascination, then let me point you to the subject of grace. Grace comes in at least two forms. Normally, when we think of the name of the church or we think of God's sovereign grace, we think primarily of the life and the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the offer of salvation that we have in him, and we should. But there is another form of God's grace at hand, and that is of common grace. You'll remember these words from Matthew 5. He causes the Son, his Son, to rise on the evil and the good. He causes the rain, he sends the rain, on the righteous and the unrighteous. Common grace is the provision of life and the maintaining of the order of the world. Bacot shares a passage from Abraham Kuyper that he was exposed to many years ago that became revelatory to him. In coming to terms with the life of the believer in public outside of the church. And, and uh, this, the quote is primarily uh, Kuyper, uh, but I have inserted a phrase that ties it back to this church as I start. The tradition on which this church finds its theology has not only honored man for the sake of his likeness to the divine image, but also the world as a divine creation, and has at once placed to the front the great principle that there is a particular grace that leads to salvation, and also a common grace by which God, maintaining the life of the world, relaxes the curse which rests upon it, arrests its process of corruption and allows the untrammeled development of our life in which to glorify himself as creator. Thus, the church receded in order to be neither more nor less than the congregation of believers, 
And in every department, the life of the world was not emancipated from God, but from the dominion of the church. Thus, domestic life regained its independence. Trade and commerce realized their strength. In liberty, art and science were set free from every ecclesiastical bond and restored to their own inspirations. And man began to understand the subjection of all nature with its hidden forces and treasures to himself as a holy duty imposed upon him by the ordinance of paradise have dominion over them. Henceforth, the curse would no longer rest upon the world itself, but upon that which is sinful in it. And instead of monastic flight from the world, the duty is now emphasized of serving God in the world, in every position in life, to praise, the God, in, praise God in the church and to serve him in the world became the inspiring impulse and in the church, strength was gathered by which to resist temptation and sin in the world. The life of the world is to be honored in its independence. We must, in every domain, discover the treasures and develop the potencies hidden by God in nature and human life. Bacot, after reading that, reading that, said, Now I was reading something about the grace of creation that made it possible for us to bring God glory by our participation in the world. Bacot also refers to a, a, a more recent Dutch theologian named Max Stackhouse who devised a fourfold sort of framework or set of principles to think about how we take our lives into public, into the world. And what he said is we, we come bearing religious insight, we gain from the scripture, but we also have access to philosophical window, wisdom and social analysis and experience. And we bring these things into the discussion in public. And these things then, uh, he, he says, are tr they're tremendously important for that Christians would see that it's always been our responsibility to care for the world, cultivating the flourishing of life through activity in all aspects of culture, politics, education, medicine, business, the sciences, ranging from molecular science to space exploration. The arts from performing to visual to structural to even architecture. Stackhouse calls this a public theology. With it, he suggests that it lends the Christian the ability to reasonably discuss with people of any and all and no faiths our perspectives on life and civil society. We, we can engage for the good of the world and glorify God by doing it. We can bring our passions and our expertise and our concerns into the public. That we bring them is important but how we bring them is also critical. How are Christians understood in our culture right now? Judgmental, hypocritical, uncaring, unable to listen, perhaps so separated into our own world that we're irrelevant to those around us, out of touch, viewing the world primarily as a political battlefield? Bacon comments on this. He says, the vexation that we have about culture wars is one way to present our concerns. Ultimately, the central question, however, is one about what it means to live out a public Christ-likeness that exhibits a clear care for, for people as well as issues. Another helpful way Baco raises the questions about this, he says, what does it mean to pursue holiness in a way that extends to and permeates the public dimensions of our faith? What public posture emerges 
for someone who is concerned about holiness in public. I would suggest that we start by recognizing this, that if you and I look around and we see really destructive tendencies in the culture that's around us, it would be important to recognize that we are a product of the culture around us. And we probably exhibit and have been infected by some of those things that we see around us that are so destructive. And if that's the case, then the proper posture for us to start would be applying a lens of self-examination and humility and repentance before engaging others. After starting with a lens of self-reflection and humility, Christians who are committed to cultural engagement and public responsibility should continually pursue things that make the world a better place, I think. In 2010, James Davidson Hunter wrote a very interesting book that was really widely read and discussed at the time called To Change the World. Reading Baycoat reminded me of this and his argument that Christians should be present in all aspects of society, but that most changes in society take much longer than we would prefer, much longer. Rarely, for example, in the span of a generation. So Hunter was one of a few notable voices calling for a strategy with less attention to success in political battles and more emphasis on Christ-like faithfulness and presence in smaller spheres of influence so that our effect in this sense is slower than we would appreciate, but it's in all parts of our society in small ways by many people. I, I, as I work toward wrapping up here, I just want to emphasize sort of two aspects of what I think the scripture is calling us to do. The first is the recognition of the creation mandate and God's common grace. That is, this invitation for us to be present in every aspect of society, the science, the arts, business, medicine, more. But second, I want to emphasize that the scripture is also concerned with what kind of people we are when we show up in those places reflecting holiness. And, and I don't mean primarily a holiness that tries to separate us from, being, from coming in contact with that which is you know, offensive or the wrong thing or the wrong person in fear of contamination, but rather a, a, a holiness that reflects a Christian maturity. I'll give you two examples of Christian maturity. It says to, that to be an elder, one of the expectations is that you are a respected person outside of the church. Now, I don't think that that's a special assignment just for elders. I think it's a mark of Christian maturity for any of us and all of us. Another aspect is, is sort of how the arc of, of uh, Christian maturity bends toward love. Of course, a mature Christian would love their family, take care of their kids, but of course, even pagans would do that. Then the scripture pushes us to love our neighbor, of course, one of the greatest commandments. But the arc of Christian maturity bends way past that. Jesus says to the point of loving our enemy. Love for our enemy is, an, is a marker of Christian maturity. And I think that if we can demonstrate Christian maturity in our conversations in public through these kinds of things that we will bring into the public the kind of person that could be heard. And if it, it seems hard to understand that, you know, when the, the phrase that I read about God causing his son to rise on the evil and the good, 
immediately preceding that, like the, it's actually part of the same verse, but immediately preceding that is a phrase in which Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. And then he uses the, the image of God's common grace and kindness for the evil and the unrighteous as an indicator that this is genuinely possible. We might think of the, whole, of, of the presence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Is our public witness, is our public presence marked by love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness? Is that not who we should be known for being in public? Now, if this is a little intimidating for you, especially in a, in a, in a world, in a country, in a society that just seems like it will take us apart limb from limb if it gets a chance and we maybe feel the need to be defensive or self-protective. I think go back to a comment that Brooks made at the end of the interview that I thought was very, very insightful and helpful. He said, there is an illiberal left. There is. He says, I, as a conservative, I, 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 you know, I live in New York City, I work for the New York Times, and I lecture at Yale. So I'm in liberal settings. But the illiberal left that hates me, doesn't want to even hear from me. He said, it's 20% at best. Do you know what the vast majority of people respond to my teaching? He says, they're curious. They, they have not come from a place that gives them a moral foundation that, that allows for things like redemption and forgiveness and grace. They're curious about this. They, they actually want to talk about it. And so even in a setting, and he says, I've been there many times, where people on the far right or the far left curse at me and yell at me in public, even in a setting like that, if I can muster up the ability to say to them, you know, I think I might understand where you're coming from. Or like, I, I would really like to understand what's happened to make you feel like that. Could we get a beer? He says it absolutely revolutionizes the conversation, even in the most caustic settings. We don't need to be afraid. The world around us might be coming apart. Um, we as Christian people are sent out into the world, both reflecting God's redemptive grace and his common grace. And to be a witness and a representative and a reflection of the kindness and the goodness of God causes the sun to come up and the rain to come down. So I would just say, let's bring that to bear in public. And as an aside, thinking back to my friend and the state of much pastoral leadership in the country, and I didn't run this by or check with Marshall, so I don't have any idea how he's doing actually at the moment and the rest of the pastors on staff. So it's really not about this church per se and this pastor, but in general, let me just say this. The pastors and their wives bear a lot. And if we could pay more a little more attention to that than maybe we have in the past, it would do them and us well. It would do the church well. The church writ large in America is arguably in a lot of trouble. If we can embody these things, being these kinds of Christians in public, then surely we can also do that in the midst of our congregations and with one another, and it will be well for us and our witness to Jesus Christ. Let me finish in prayer. God, we thank you that you are patient with us uh, in our confusion and in our shortcoming and even in our incivility. 
And we pray that we would reflect on the grace that you have given to us, both in your promise to forgive us and in your provision around us. We do thank you for the Son. We do thank you for this place. We pray that as we go out in the world, that we would do so in a way that does glorify you and is good for the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.